Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You can't have Martin Luther King Day without knowing who Martin Luther King is. I, I mean, I guess you can technically, but it, it does call us to know who, who is this man that we are remembering on the, I guess what, the, the third Monday in January. Uh, because we do live in a, a day and time today where um, our current generation wants to attempt to change history, uh, or at the very least, purge history from some of the more unpleasant and unflattering aspects. We can remember not too long ago when uh, there were movements to remove statues and remove anything that was symbolic of, of times gone by. And again, you can uh, have opinions and things about that, but I think regardless of what our opinion is about whether things are flattering or unflattering, that it's still very important for us to understand our history. Why do we study history? Well, so we don't repeat the mistakes of our past for one reason. History is important. It helps us understand something of who we are, where we've come from. And we also know that as God's people, that there are very good lessons to be learned from the history of the people of God. The Bible, of course, is a history book in that it gives us historical documentation of events. It's not a history book, though, in the same way because it is written with a very specific, a very clear purpose. It might be described best as a book that details God's plan of redemption throughout history. I know you didn't necessarily come today for a history lesson, but every once in a while, the Bible lends itself to remembering and reflecting on our history, remembering and reflecting on who we are as the people of God. If you've got your Bibles open today, we are in Joshua chapter 24, the the very last chapter in the book of Joshua. We'll spend just a couple of weeks considering these last words here of General Joshua. And here Joshua is offering a, a final challenge to the people of God. He knows he's leaving. He knows his life is is short-lived. And so he has a final challenge for the people. And in this final appeal that he makes to the people of God, the nation of Israel, he takes us on a historical reflection of these people, what has been a relatively short amount of time for this nation. So again, in Joshua chapter 24, if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words from Joshua chapter 24, beginning here in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess." But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt." And you lived in the wilderness a long time. 
Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came back to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for when it encourages us to remember where we've come from. We certainly understand that in our day and time, much time has passed between the end of the book of Joshua and our own day and time. But even in this brief remembrance of the history of your people, may we learn something of our own history. May it be significant to us today. May we learn to not repeat the mistakes of yesterday. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, often the, the question is raised is, why does the Bible take the time to do this sort of recollection? Uh, and, and actually, when you, if you just read the whole Bible, and I, I encourage you, find you a reading plan that you can get through in a year so that you have the, the whole biblical story uh, over the course of a year. It's good for us to be able to, to read in that way. And we encounter in numerous places where the Bible actually has a recalling, a recollection of the historical pathway that God's people have taken. And it happens a lot. The one we're probably most familiar with is over in Acts chapter 7. It's where Stephen, the deacon, does this, but he does it right before he's executed. Part of his sermon is this lengthy recollection of the history of God's people. And some we're very familiar with because we tend to spend more time in the New Testament than the Old Testament. Sometimes we get to these recaps, and, and I know that maybe y'all don't do this, but sometimes we get to these recaps and we kind of speed through it. Uh, because we, we've read it already. Why do I have to read the recap if I've read the original? I don't, need the, I don't need the Cliff Notes version if I spent time doing the original. But it's important for us to actually take time and listen to the retellings because if we will slow down, we'll actually find that these, these recaps have very important lessons to teach us. It raises the question, what are these lessons that the past has to teach us? I think one of the things we find in Joshua chapter 24 here is that we recognize that, that God often works through the least likely characters. The list of history here that Joshua gives to us is, it reveals some very interesting people. For example, we meet the, the man named Terah. And again, you've encountered him already if you've read in the book of Genesis. He's the father of Abraham. And what do we know about Terah? Well, we don't know much about him, but we do know something. We know that he was a pagan. And he didn't worship the God of Israel because the God of Israel, well, wasn't the God of Israel yet, but he didn't worship Yahweh. He did not worship that God. The likelihood is that Terah was also a polytheist. He worshiped multiple gods. Like most, he probably had an altar in his home, in his tent, where he had statues of gods that he actually worshiped, that he paid homage to. It says right there in verse 2 that he worshiped other gods. Now, if I were into revisionist history, and I would read this, and I would say, you know what, I'm not a fan. 
of the fact that the father of the man who started all this in the Old Testament was a pagan. And so if I were going to revise this to make it more friendly, I'd probably take some of that out. Because I need Terah to be a faithful man because he gave birth to Abraham. You know, Abraham was his offspring. I need him to be a, a faithful man, not a, not a pagan man. But it turns out that Abraham's dad was a pagan, and that cast Abraham in a bad light. You've got the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you know their stories. They're like a bad soap opera. The, the things that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get into would make, would make some modern soap operas seem sort of tame. Uh, the way that these men carried about their lives. Again, if I were going to revise history, I'd probably change this up a little bit, cast them in a better light. I don't want the, these, these patriarchs of my faith being such, a, uh, such fishy characters. Uh, we, we meet Balaam in this recollection. Balaam's another interesting character that, that Joshua tells the people about. And, and I think people just love the story of Balaam. I mean, again, you get his story back in Numbers chapter 22. If you don't know the story of Balaam, Balaam's the guy with the talking donkey, okay? The movie Shrek, okay? That's Balaam, okay? Uh, and, and I've often wondered when, if you remember the story, Balaam is riding on his donkey. He's, he's trying to get through this narrow pass, and the donkey won't go. And so he ends up beating the donkey, and the donkey's like, what'd you beat me for? I've often wondered if he sounds like Eddie Murphy when he talked to Balaam. <laughs> But man, Balaam's story is something that shows up all the time. He's mentioned in eight books of the Bible, Balaam is. He's not a false prophet, he's a bad prophet. God actually uses Balaam to, to bless the people of Israel, even though Balaam was hired to curse the people of Israel. Balaam's a bad guy, but he's a true prophet because he actually speaks what God wants him to speak. Uh, again, these, these things that Josh was telling us about, it's not exhaustive. He's not trying to tell an exhaustive history. We've already got that, but he wants to give an overview. And what we can take from this overview is something very important. God is not looking for superlatives to build his kingdom. If you remember what a superlative is, if you graduated from high school, you, you know, at the, that, that, one of those last things you do as a senior is vote for your senior superlatives. And, and back when I was in school, it was like things like most likely to succeed, best looking, most school spirit, and you had all these, all these sort of things. I think, they, they, I think they probably tamed that some because it hurts feelings to say that somebody's best looking or something like that. Um, and today's day and time, you can't say most likely to succeed because everybody's going to succeed, Right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the everybody gets a trophy mindset. You have the superlatives. Who's the best of the best? The best in this field, the best in this regard, the best. And God, so frequently we see in the story of redemption, God is not using superlatives to build his kingdom. In fact, some of the superlatives that we see in the Bible, their story doesn't always play out that well. I think of one man in the Bible who was a superlative. His name is Absalom. Absalom was mentioned as the best-looking man in the Bible. And so if you could imagine who Absalom was, he was King David's son, and the Bible actually says this about Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now ladies, calm your heart down just a little bit. This, this is this guy, and from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, there was no blemish in him. Now, that's impressive. That tells me some things about Absalom. One, it tells me that he had good hair. 
It also tells me he didn't do anything because uh, if his feet were perfect, I mean, he had, to, he had to not do anything in life if his feet were perfect. Best-looking man in the Bible. Most, most attractive man in the Bible is Absalom. You would think that somebody that was that handsome as Absalom, that God would use Absalom to, to, to do amazing and mighty things. But listen to what happened, happened to Absalom. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9, we read about his death. Best-looking man in the Bible, Absalom. He was staging a coup against his father. Says he happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. In other words, he was hung. I mean, I love the language. He was suspended between heaven and heaven and earth. That good-looking man, ladies was riding his mule, and he was not paying attention, and he got his head hung in an oak tree, and he hung himself right there in that, in that, in that battle. And here's the thing. His good looks could not spare him a tragic and ridiculous death. Before he died, he had big plans. He attempted to revolt against his father, David. He wanted to be king. And instead of becoming king like he wanted, the best-looking man in the Bible, he got hung up in a tree and was killed. And what an embarrassing death, right? I mean, not like he was, he was engaged in the heat of battle with his sword in one hand and his shield in the other, and a skilled archer got an arrow right in the gap. It wasn't that kind of death. I mean, I look at this death, and I think, the dude wasn't just paying attention. I was probably looking in a mirror. <laughs> and he didn't see the oak tree that he hung himself in. And you think about this, and I mean, again, we, we laugh, but, but the Bible actually says that someone who's hung in a tree was cursed. Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23, Paul paraphrases it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. If you're hung in a tree, that's why Jesus being hung on the cross, he bears the curse of humanity. That's why he does that. But Absalom was, was a cursed man for being hung in a tree. David had lots of superlatives in his family. He had another one. His name was Solomon. So if Absalom was the best-looking dude that ever lived, Solomon was the smartest dude that ever lived. So we, again, David's got, got all kinds of superlatives in his, in his lineage there. But it didn't go well for Solomon. Why? Because he was too smart to guard his heart. He was the wisest man on earth. Everyone came to hear from his wisdom. He wasn't as good-looking as Absalom was, but he was certainly smarter, and Solomon would have never got hung in an oak tree. I can promise you that. But Solomon's wisdom was not good enough because his heart was not guarded. He ended up going after other gods because of his pursuit of foreign women. Instead, the people that God uses for greatness are so frequently flawed in some capacity. Not the best looking, not the smartest, not the brightest, not the strongest, but people with all kinds of flaws. I think of Noah. Noah was an outcast. Why was he an outcast? Because he was building a boat when he wasn't anywhere near water. I mean, if you want to see what kind of outcast you are, you go start building a big boat in your backyard. We don't live anywhere close to somewhere that needs, that needs a boat. And people say, what are you doing? I'm building a boat in case it floods. I moved on to a, a, a house we used to live in. There was a, a lake in the backyard, and, and uh, it was down at the bottom of the hill. And, and somebody said, are you worried about it flooding? I said, I'm just going to tell you something. If that floods, I mean, we're at the top of the hill, the lake's at the bottom of the hill. If that lake floods my house, we got bigger problems than my house flooding. 
Okay, if I were building a boat back there, there'd be no need for that boat. There's no need for a flood. Noah's an outcast building a boat where they didn't need a boat. Abraham was a pagan. His dad was a pagan. He came from a pagan family. Joseph was a prisoner. Moses was a fugitive. Again, you think about these people with these flawed stories, these flawed characters with, with all kinds of baggage that they bring to the story. Rahab, we've talked about Rahab already in the book of Joshua. She was a, a, a harlot. Gideon, the judge, was a scaredy cat. Jephthah was a judge. He was the son of a prostitute. King Josiah was a child when he became a king. Queen Esther was a slave before she became a queen. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was an unwed pregnant teenager. Every one of the disciples brought their own share of baggage. The apostle Paul was a murderer. And anything about Jesus, the Old Testament says that he had no form that we should behold him. Instead, Jesus was a, was a peasant carpenter before he began his public ministry. Again, you look at all these people that, that, that make the, the hall of faith, the hall of fame for faith. It, it's not famous, incredible. It's not wealthy. It's not rich. It's not beautiful. It's not intelligent. It's, it's people with with problems. It's people who don't ever, would never make the cut for lifestyles of the rich and famous. But it's people with, it's normal people with, with, with issues. And what this reminds us of is that you don't have to be special to be useful. You simply have to be available. I think people use their own perceived inadequacies, their own perceived lack of greatness as an excuse for, for inactivity or a lack of faith. I can't do that. I can't teach that class. I can't accomplish this because of whatever inadequacy I bring to the table. But the truth is that if you are nothing special, you're just the kind of person that God may want to use to do something extraordinary. If you're nothing special, you're exactly the kind of person that God might want to use to do great and awesome things. I think the second thing this history lesson teaches us is it teaches us that we need to be looking at God's pattern and God's plan on a much larger scale. I remember back in eighth grade geography class, they taught us how to use a map scale. You know what a map scale is. And again, this is back when we used paper maps. And so now the map scale is you know, pinching and zooming in. But, but back when we had paper maps, there was a little thing at the bottom that, that told you what the scale was. One inch equaled so many miles. And you could use that scale to kind of guess how far away something was. But maps serve different purposes based on their scale. A globe has a much different scale than a floor plan. But both have very different purposes. One of the purposes of these broad historical recollections that we get in the Bible is, is it tells us of God's purpose on a much bigger scale. Again, sometimes in the day-to-day, -day, we lose sight of the grander scale at which God is working. There may be days that we lose sight completely of the hand of God in our lives. I mean, I know I've been there. Some of us, maybe your job is monotonous. You know, if you make widgets every day of your life, making widgets can get old. It can get tiring if, if your widget making is something that happens day in and day out. It's the same widget over and over and over again. If your day is monotonous, if your job is routine, you may simply lose sight to the fact that God might just be up to something. And for that reason, it is good for us to step back and paint with a broad brush. Instead of looking at the minutia of the small scale, we ought to step back and see if we can find God's handiwork on a much grander scale. This little retelling that Joshua gives us here covers a span of about 700 years. 
That's how much time is covered in these first 13 verses of Joshua chapter 24. 700 years. And again, we have a hard time thinking in those frames of reference. 700 years. I mean, our nation is, is what, 250 years old. And so thinking about things from a 700-year span of time, just think about what's happened over the course of the last 700 years in our own history. In 1382, Thomas Wycliffe translated the first Bible into English. It's, the English Bible is only 700 years old. It didn't exist before then. And so we've been, but something that's developed in the last 700 years in 1396, Johann Gutenberg was born. Prior to that, if you wanted a book, guess what you had to do? Write it by hand. Gutenberg came along and developed the printing press, and now we're able to have Bibles in all kinds of different languages and all kinds of different hands and all kinds of different nations because of what came along with Gutenberg. In 1483, nearly 100 years after Gutenberg was born, Martin Luther would be born, not the Martin Luther that we celebrate tomorrow. Martin Luther, the original, was born. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Y'all got it. In 1517, the Protestant Reformation began. Up until 1517, 500 years ago, the only thing that existed was Catholic. There was no such thing as, as Protestant. And it wasn't until 1517 that we began to see the, the flaws in the Catholic faith and the papacy and, and the restoration of truth to Christianity. In 1549, Christianity would reach Asia and the nation of Japan. In 1611, the King James Version of the Bible was published well after Wycliffe translated his. In 1636, Harvard University was founded. In 1733, the first great awakening burned across the United States. In 1876, the telephone was invented. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew for the first time. You say, what are all these random historical facts? But the thing is, is that, is that in the time and in the place these things happen, they may not have seemed tremendously significant. But as time has passed, we look back at these moments and we can see how God has used these moments to enrich and expand and grow the kingdom of God. Just think about some of the things that I've mentioned. The Wright brothers. You say, well, that, that's significant. We have, uh, I mean, it's a lot easier to get from point A to point B. Was, was the Wright brothers' flight significant in God's plan of redemption? I think so. Prior to 1903, the idea of taking the gospel to the nations required difficult and dangerous travel by sea. There was no going to the jungles of, of South America without, uh, without taking a, 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 an ocean liner to South America and then some sort of across land travel or river travel into the jungle. It wasn't something that was, that was easily accomplished. But after humans became a flying people, it suddenly became realistic for the gospel to truly reach the ends of the earth. All that possible because the Wright brothers in 1903 said, let's make a flying machine. And now we can see the gospel legitimately reaching to the ends of the earth. One of the most famous missionary endeavors of the last century involved taking the gospel to a tribe of warriors in Ecuador in 1955 and 1956. It would not have been feasible if not for the availability of the airplane and a small mission organization known as Mission Aviation Fellowship. They're still around to this day. Here's something about Mission Aviation Fellowship. In 1945, a handful of pilots returning from World War II had a vision to reach isolated people with the love of Christ by using airplanes. 
Over 75 years later, Mission Aviation Fellowship is still pursuing that vision by bringing help, hope, and healing through aviation into the farthest reaches of our globe. From that first flight to Mexico by pilot Betty Green to transport Bible translators, Mission Aviation Fellowship, also known as MAF, continues to partner with hundreds of nonprofit and missionary organizations, local church leaders, medical teams, government entities, and disaster personnel to respond to the needs of people. We do our work in some of the world's most isolated places as we seek to display the transforming love of Christ. I invite you to learn more at maf.org. That's incredible. Not possible if not for the Wright brothers making the decision to build a flying machine. And now we're able to use those, use aircraft to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think of that little invention back in 1876, the telephone. Uh, today, that invention has morphed into miniature computers that we carry around in our pockets. I mean, again, there's nothing in even similar to this than what happened in 1876, but the idea was planted there. And I can't just, I mean, even how far the telephone has come just in, in my life. I remember as a kid, I mean, I remember, I remember that distinctly, and the, the kids in the room are like, what is that? And I mean, you dial and you hear it clicking back, and some of y'all even remember having to uh, to get Flo to connect you, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, get Barney on the phone there. And I think about just how we've come from where you couldn't pick up the phone, and and uh, with somebody else on the line, you could hear, you know, you could get in on their conversation. To uh, today, I mean, our young people they're like, what's a busy signal? And I remember as a as a kid, like a busy signal was the staple of our existence. I mean, that busy signal. Good gracious. How far they've come. I mean, the latest version of these devices even send out communications where there's no cell phone towers. I mean, the new ones can reach a satellite and send out communications via satellite. All that started because in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell decided to invent the telephone. And I think about what's the significance of that in the grand scheme of things. We look at this massive globe that, that was full of people that are unreachable, and with just two inventions, the globe became so much smaller to the point that we can communicate to the other side of the world now with hardly any effort, and we can get the gospel to the ends of the earth on the back of a simple airplane. Harvard University, founded in 1636. You may not believe this today, but Harvard University was founded with the goal of educating clergy. Harvard University was founded with the goal of teaching preachers how to preach. Today, if you find a pastor who graduated from Harvard University, you probably don't want to go to his church but in 1636, that was a different story. And Harvard University being founded set the stage for the United States to become the global leader for theological training and education. There is no shortage of places where a man or woman who's called into ministry can go and be trained how to serve in that capacity. No shortage of places, all because of what happened at Harvard in 1636. And I say all this to say that we don't need to lose sight of the fact that God works in and through history. And we may live in times and places where we seem inconsequential, where we seem isolated, but that may exactly be when God is getting ready to open the door to stunning movements that are just around the corner. We have to understand that our history is just part of God's great plan of redemption. And when the Bible reminds us of our history, 
We do well today to see ourselves as a continuation of God's plan. We're still part of the story that Joshua began telling right here in chapter 24. And though the Bible is certainly a unique story, it is for us, and it tells us the stories of ordinary people and God's dealings with them. So today, if you feel rather ordinary, take heart, because if you're willing and available, you can be a priceless part of God's story. God is not finished with his work in the world, and I firmly believe that the church today is still his plan to see that work completed. Thirdly, God's grace is evident in history. Joshua reminds the people that God had been good to them. Now, his goodness does not negate the fact that God still takes sin very seriously. Sometimes we mistake God's judgment against sin as if he somehow isn't gracious, but consider how much grace God gave to people even before judgment. I think about the prophet Jonah. Jonah was sent to preach to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a terrible, bloodthirsty people. They were brutal to their enemies. Their enemies would often be uh, beheaded and their heads hung on spears outside the cities or they'd be impaled on spears and set outside the cities as a warning against anybody that would try to fight them. They were cruel. They were terrible. They were some of the tyrants of ancient history. But God sent Jonah to preach repentance. I, 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 me and Jonah, I agree with Jonah. I don't want to go there. There's a lot of places I'll go, I don't want to go preach to the Assyrians. Jonah's reluctant, but Jonah ultimately goes, and Jonah goes, he preaches repentance, and guess what happens to that generation of Assyrians? They repent, and God spares them the judgment. God relented from the judgment that was coming. How patient is this God with us in our sin? But we have to recognize that there is a limit to God's patience. Even in the book of Joshua, you would think that people who had wandered in the wilderness and they experienced daily God's provision, that, that daily God gave them what they needed, you would think that they wouldn't have a problem listening to God and doing what he said. But along came Achan. Achan, what are you doing? You stole from Jericho. Did you miss everything? Did you get mud on your sandals when you crossed the Jordan sandals? It didn't wear out, by the way. These people were absolutely the beneficiaries of God's promises to them. They were once slaves to Pharaoh, but God delivered them. Even as they served out their sentence for disobedience in the wilderness, God provided for them daily, and indeed their sandals never wore out. But look what happens once their sentence of wandering was up in Joshua 24, verse 13. God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now hear those words, and I can't help but think about the cross. Uh, again, Josh was talking about the resources of the land but I hear the cross in this. I consider what Jesus did for me and for you on our behalf, and I imagine the Lord is looking at us, and I can imagine him saying these words. I am preparing for you a home that you did not build. And that home that we don't build, we get to live in for eternity. The home that we didn't contribute resources to, we get to dwell in for all of eternity. 
I am preparing for you a home that you did not build. And he continues, I have given you a righteousness that you could not earn. My gosh. I can't. There's nothing in me that can earn the righteousness that I need to stand before a holy God. The Bible says that my best acts of righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. And so I could go before the Lord, say, Lord, look at all my righteousness. Look at my self-righteousness. Look at all the good that I've done, Lord. And he's going to look at me. He's going to say, get that filth away from me. Instead, I don't stand before the Lord in my righteousness. I stand before the Lord in his. Because he has given me a righteousness in Christ that I could never possibly earn. I've given you land and cities that you didn't build. You're eating from orchards that you didn't plant. Jesus says, I've given you a, a home that you can't contribute to and a righteousness that you can't earn. God's grace is evident. Because apart from Jesus, listen, I am toast, I am lost, I am hopeless, I am homeless. Paul said it well in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. We were lowly, Christless, hopeless, godless. That's who we were apart from Christ. But Jesus, in Ephesians 2, 13, Paul goes on. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. The blood of Jesus. God's grace is evident in history if we will but watch for it. Joshua reminds us of something profound here. Your life really does matter to God. Say it to yourself. My life matters to God. You know, we like to categorize people on a scale of consequentialness. You think about the most important people. We, we, we rank them. Again, we may never say it, but we rank them. Um, you know, if, if a homeless person came up to you and said, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you, you think, oh, he's just trying to get a free lunch. If the queen of England, or the king of England, if the king of England comes up to you and says, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you, what do you do? You get ready. You know, you make it a priority. You're putting on a suit and tie. You're going to go have lunch with the king of England. You may not like the man, but you see him as someone who is important. We put presidents and prime ministers up on top. I, I've been listening to all the back and forth over classified documents, and I keep waiting for the FBI to come and raid my house and take, like, hospital bills and things like that. You know, like, look at my, comp my you know, here's my classified document. <laughs> I hear all this back and forth about classified documents, and I think, you know, what's the big deal? And they say, oh, these presidents, these, these important people like to take these documents home because they're going to put it in their library, and it's going to cement their legacy. And I think, well, I, you know, I'll leave this power bill to my kids. You know, I, I, <laughs> I just so far beyond me. 
that's, we, we put people up there like that. We, we put celebrities up there like that as well. These people are so important, so consequential. And I'm not saying that these people aren't useful to the Lord. That's not the case at all. But you can't help but read the Bible. See, there were powerful, influential people that weren't God-fearers that God still used. And we put presidents and prime ministers and celebrities up there as influencers. But what we find in the kingdom of God to make the greatest impact are the quiet efforts of regular folks. If you've been in church, you know these people. You maybe even right now are thinking back to that Sunday school teacher, that, uh, that choir leader, that person that wasn't famous, wasn't prominent, but was faithful. I met George Phillips in August of 2002. George was my deacon. Now again, if I say that, you may think, well, you know, I had a deacon at a church. You know, the deacon was responsible for me. I'm, George was not that, my deacon in that sense. George was my deacon in the sense that he was the only deacon that we had at this little bitty church. I served that church while I was in seminary. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. The fact that they're still standing is just a testimony of God's grace. But George was my deacon, the only deacon we had. George went on to be with the Lord a decade ago. This is what his obituary said. His hobbies included gardening, working the land with his John Deere tractor, and watching Western movies in his downtime. I can't think of a more ordinary obituary for an old man than that. I mean, if you're, if you're an elderly gentleman, you think, man, that's a pretty good life right there. Western movies, a tractor, and work in the garden. George had an ordinary life. But his obituary also said this. He was a deacon and dedicated member of Vance Baptist Church. And George Phillips stands out in my memory as one of the most faithful men I've ever known. Sure, he played in the garden, and sure, he worked on his tractor, and he liked the occasional western. But he loved the Lord, and he was faithful, and he served well. George never had a smartphone. George never did a TikTok dance. George would have not even known what Instagram was. He would have never been described as an influencer at all. Wouldn't even meet the, it wouldn't even register on the scale of what an influencer is today. But I know George goes down in my history and the history of so many others as a hero and an influencer for Christ. Those are the people that make a difference in the kingdom of God. If you want to make a difference in the kingdom, it's not hard. It's quite simple, actually. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Keep your sin list short and look for ways to serve and love others. That will make you an influencer in the kingdom of God. And that'll help you on a list of history of God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things for him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word and for how it reaches into our hearts and reminds us of Simple fact, God, that you're not looking for the mighty and the powerful. You're not looking for movers and shakers. 
you're not looking for people to make a name in the halls of Congress, but you're looking for ordinary people to be extraordinarily faithful. You're looking for people to go to their work and commit their vocation to, to you. You're looking for people to raise their children and to do so in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. You're looking for people to commit to their spouses, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and for wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. You're looking for people like George Phillips and so many others that come to mind who obey you in the day-to-day -day and look to be pleasing, to live lives that are pleasing to you. God, we look back over the history and we can see how you've used events and moments and milestones to launch extraordinary movements. But so many of those things happen because of just regular everyday decisions that lead to great and awesome things. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.